right, everybody. Welcome to this week's Learning the Tropes. I'm Aaron, And I'm Clayton. And I'm your Roman novel veteran. And I'm the Virgin. And we're your hosts. Um, hey, Clayton. Hey. So we, we did ex- it. <laughs> we we finally decided to do. to do it. I know. So after, you know, we've already told you guys that we're taking a bit of a break, um, but we were thinking and talking about how we had read all the Bridgertons and we had not read The Duke and I, and especially, you know, we read the series in anticipation of the Netflix show. And I think we sort of realized maybe we should have read The Duke and I. Well, because it is the book that the first series or the first season... Mm-hmm. I use the series as, you know, the the English version, the UK version of shows. You're very continental. We always say it. And also, I think, you know, as we were reading the rest of the Bridgertons, it did feel like maybe we were missing something. And also, we've read other books that do have sexual assault in it. And I think it is really interesting to to talk about it. I think it was something that we were sort of, or I at least, because I was the one that made the decision, I was kind of shy about doing for a host of reasons. Um, but then I decided maybe the reasons to do it were starting to outweigh the reasons to not do it. So here we are. So we read it in, we read the Bridgertons in the most convoluted way possible. It, we read book four, then two, three, then five, six, seven, eight, and then one. Which the is way- the way you need to read it now. We figured it out. This is the way to do it. So we will talk about that. I hate to. I don't want to make this this review about this controversy because I think that's unfair. I think so too. And it's funny. Um, it's funny with this book. Uh, this was the first Bridgerton book I read. And my memory of it was so different than when the book actually, than what the book actually was, that I was like, did I dream up a different plot for this book? Because I was so off. Um, And I, I really, really enjoyed this book a lot. And I think, you know, Julia Quinn has talked about how were she to write this book now, she would not have included that in the way that it is in the book. Um, And she sort of recognizes it to be obviously like not okay and understands why people feel a certain way about it. Um, And I think for authors, it's it. I appreciate that for her. You know what I mean? That it's like you have to grow and you have to acknowledge where and something you wrote was kind of a little bit tone deaf and then sort of change it moving forward, but acknowledge that it existed. I think, you know, there are people who would be like, no, it's fine. It's fine. Here's why it's fine. And sort of try to like twist it. Um, but she doesn't. And and I really respect that about her. Well, so before we jump into it, because it's so easy to just want to jump into this, we need to judge these covers. Yeah. So there are three covers because I included... So we have the 2000, the original release of the cover. We have the 2015 update. And then, of course, we have the 2020 Netflix tie-in. So the 2001, I man, just completely pink, hazy, small, little, like, horse and carriage down at the bottom. Mm-hmm. I, I, I got to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be so happy when we don't have to look at these covers anymore. 
Yeah, it's yeah, it's like a violety pink. It's it's fine. It doesn't tell you anything. It just bore the hell out of me. Yeah. And I wonder, though, because, I mean, it was 20 years ago, which is like, for me, the year 2000 was about five years ago. That's how <laughs> I feel. Emotionally. Yeah. But then when I stop it, I think I'm like, oh, no, that was 20 years ago. So I'm like, I don't know, were sensibilities that different that possibly this was something people were attracted to? And also the thing about the original covers is like they do together. You can tell that they are a set in a way that I think is was probably really important. But I agree, it doesn't spark, it doesn't spark joy for me. Yes. And then, yeah, the 2015, I think is, is really cute. And it's a little bit more lively and a little bit more playful. It's a white gloved hand handing an invitation with the Duke and I on it. uh, That that excites me. That Mm -hmm. gets, I mean, well, compared to the original ones, that gets my blood rushing. Your blood rushing? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So I like that. I mean, it's not it's nothing great, but it definitely has. I like the the lush kind of like greenery behind the the invitation, and mm-hmm. the, I, I like the white glove because it's it's very. Where am I? Where am I being invited to? Where are we going? Where is this book taking me? I like that. Yeah, it's yeah, it's beautiful, and it really catches your eye, and it really keeps your eye. I yeah, I love the twenty fifteen. And then 2020 is the Netflix tie-in version with the actors who are playing Mm -hmm. Simon and Daphne. Yeah. So it's Phoebe Denver, who's an actress who I've seen before in a bunch of like British shows and stuff. And I think she's really like a great actress and really interesting and obviously like stuntingly beautiful. But she's not who I would have picked for Daphne necessarily. I don't know. Maybe we should save this for when we're watching the show. I think um, we should. Yeah. And then the other one is uh, Reggae Jean Page, who plays Simon, who I do have to say, I think is a fantastic Simon. And in the book, whenever I was reading about Simon, I was picturing him and it worked very well. Well, because you'd already known he was going to be the Simon. Yeah. Well, yeah. And they've started releasing clips of the show. And I know you would never, ever. But I have been watching them. <laughs> and he See, just has that... I feel like he embodies the character in a really good way. This cover is too much of a spoiler for me mm-hmm. because I I made it a point not to imagine these two people as these characters because that is not the reading experience I want. Right. The series is different than the book. My mind should not be swayed by what the, you know, Netflix wants me to think these characters look like. Right. Well, ultimately, you're casting human beings who hopefully can act. And so it's like the pool is smaller for, you know, anyone in your mind. And it's funny because I was picturing the actor who plays Simon, but I wasn't picturing the actress who played uh, who plays Daphne. I had a different Ooh. Daphne in my mind. So it was, a uh, you know, I did my but own thing. But I also... The Daphne was not an actress you had in your mind. It was just a whatever you created person. from. Yeah. 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 No, she, she didn't... Ex- like exists she's not an actual actress um well i also didn't send you these show notes until late last night or in the afternoon yesterday so yeah no i didn't look at the cover of the netflix one until this morning mm-hmm. so i'm completely that i had a untainted reading experience yeah good just i love to be untainted 
All right, Clayton. So what was this book about? This book was about Simon, who is the titular Duke, and Daphne Bridgerton, which is the ABCD fourth <laughs> oldest Bridgerton or the fourth young. I probably the fourth oldest, right? I'm not going to try and do the other way around because well, it's there's the same. Eight, so there's four below her and three above her. Okay. Okay, I'm not going to do that math. It's just way too early. I mean, she's the fourth. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Am I, I think overthinking you count it? from the top, you don't count from the bottom. Right, you don't count from the bottom. So she is... So Simon was grew up not speaking. He, his father, who was the duke before him was a real jerk about it, shoved him off. He started becoming educated. He he had a stutter at first. He kind of loses his stutter. It only comes out when he's stressed. He has to kind of control it a little bit. And he, become, he becomes this great rake who just goes around and travels the world. But then he comes back when his to London when his father dies, or England when his father dies, and meets Daphne. So the situation is all these women want Simon, and all the men don't want to marry Daphne because she's too much of a friend. So they decide, hey, let's let's do this. Let's have a relationship, a fake relationship, so that all the women can stop bothering me and you can get a seal of approval from a duke wanting to be around you. So boom. But of course, that doesn't work out because they fall in love. <laughs> and then there's complications when they get married because he doesn't want to have kids because of how his father treated him. And Daphne wants to have kids. And so we get to the situation we'll talk about later. But then they eventually live happily ever after and they have a few kids wow you've come such a long way with the with the uh the what is it called recaps or the yeah you've come such a long way with the recaps well i come and go i feel like i i ebb and flow sometimes mm -hmm. they're good sometimes i really get a grasp of them and sometimes i'm flailing like a fish <laughs> uh oh well what, what were your impressions what did you think Start well off. again what as it, people who are listening to this episode just by itself, I, th I, I want to again say that I'm going to try to review this book as somebody who hasn't read seven other books <laughs> consecutively, which I do think just between you and me and our listening public, I don't want to ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> it was too much? It, because... Nothing against these characters in this world, but the thing that I th I've come to love about this podcast is how I'm exposed to different views and different writing styles and different genres so frequently. Mm -hmm. And to have this huge block of the same stuff it can start to deaden it in a way that's not good because I think I'm less likely to give it a a, a really fully in-depth review or a fully in-depth kind of 
giving it as much thought as I would normally for these books when they're standalone. Yeah. And and that's just me saying, this is what I do. Is that right? I No, I should be trying to do it for every book. But it kind of can get hard when it's the same thing over and over again. And not to say that I didn't enjoy this book and it's the same thing over and over quote, because we talked about how the Bridgertons have changed and how there's a certain point where Julia Quinn had to pivot because, you know, some of the things that she was relying on had changed or she had to introduce new characters and, and all this stuff. So she's done a good job of pivoting. But at the end of the day, it's the same writer with a similar style for all the books, the way she writes. And so that can become a little bit, I don't want to say samey, but, you know, you you get to know their tics and stuff and it, it doesn't get as surprising as you'd want it to be. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because when I read this book the first time, I think it was like very early in my like romance reading. And I don't think that I really understood its place in the romance canon. So coming back to read it now, it was really interesting. And, you know, having read as much as I've read and obviously, you know, two years of this podcast, having to think really critically about romance in a way that I think if you're just reading for pleasure, you know, you wouldn't necessarily do. Um, I... 100% understood why this book felt like a sea change and why this book, you know, when it hit, when it came out was such a big deal because I do think this book is really brilliantly written. I think it is really interesting the kind of things that they're trying to do and you know the criticism of the Bridgerton books can be that they're a little bit boring (laughs) not a lot happens and stuff and like that's something that we've also talked about but I think so much is always happening under the surface is is what keeps them interesting and I think especially with this book what it's saying about women's roles in the Regency when this takes place is really fascinating as it pertains to sexuality and as it pertains to childbirth um as well as having simon be a you know a duke who isn't an all-powerful you know alpha asshole he's somebody who has had real trauma in his life he's somebody who has uh you know a speech impediment and it's something that he works at for his entire life and that does never that never goes away um which i really liked as well uh, and and I thought it was really brilliant for a lot of those things. Um, the book starts like so dark and so sad <laughs> that it feels like it takes me a while to get out of it. But it starts basically with Simon's parents and his mother who feels like her only job in life is to give birth to a son and so she's given birth to two babies who have died. And then finally, you know, the doctors say that she can't get pregnant anymore. It's very dangerous for her, but she decides to do it anyway, since that she feels like that's her role. And she does. And she has a very difficult pregnancy. And it sounds like she has placenta previa or something like that. Um, and she bleeds to death and no one notices in the room because everyone is so like, focused on the new air on this baby and I found that to be like so incredibly sad but such an interesting commentary um 
to set up the rest of the book as far as like, well, what is the, I'm still working through what it actually means, but it's like, what is then the the role of women at in this time as it goes to, to procreation? And I think that can be sort of like pulled out to like now as well, sort of, you know, what are we willing to give up for that? And, and yeah. And I found it to be a, such an interesting and obviously very sad way to, to start a book and sort of set up who Simon is in his, in his life. Yeah. Cause it sets up, I mean, it's stated clearly that the father never loved the mother mm-hmm. and the mother never loved the father. It was just a business transaction, right? I mean, they had a yeah. friendship, like it's, they became friends of sorts, but otherwise this is not a loving relationship. This is a relationship that hinges on, can you give me a child? Can you give me an heir? Right. And I think that is, I mean, that, you know, comes into play because of, you know, Simon's just aversion, saying he can't have children, which which it turns out that just means he doesn't want to, like Mm -hmm. really, really doesn't want to. So there's that confusion there. But it is interesting because this book came out in 2000. And again, like we said, we think 2000 was yesterday. (laughs) But th- we haven't read any romance books really pre-2000, maybe one. Did Have we or no? Because I feel like we've only read things from the 21st century, really. I mean, we have. I mean, we read uh, Johanna Lindsay and... Um, but what I mean, I would have that? to go back and check. But yeah, I mean, we have some, but not... I would say the majority are probably after 2000 because but I two do... or three, right? We're talking two or three. We're, we're talking yeah. very small sample size. Well, so... I feel like, yeah, dreaming of you was in the late nineties, but actually I'm not sure. Okay. Anyway, it, could be, could be. But the thing with this is that, yeah, we ha- I haven't read any really, really old romances. So, all of the romances I think that I've read have been influenced by Julia Quinn or that kind of movement towards what she has done with the Bridgertons and mm-hmm. the Lisa Claypass, what she did with Dreaming of You and stuff like that. So this doesn't feel like a sea change to me because I, I'm swimming in that sea. Right. So that's why the thing is this this book... And I know when we talked to to Sarah McLean, she she was talking. She has a lot of insight about Julie Quinn and, and an insight about the Bridgertons and how it changed everything. And I always read these books looking for that. And I I understand her points and I understand what she's talking about. But just as me as somebody who is in it and in such contemporary historical writing and all the books that I've read, it's very hard for me to see this as a lightning bolt. Yeah. I think it's the same thing as why everyone thinks that like, you know, you hear that Citizen Kane is this great groundbreaking movie and then you watch it and you're like, oh, this is kind of boring. But it's because that pioneered so many techniques that now we have seen and have been improved upon, improved upon, improved upon. So we don't see what a brilliant change that was and to see the first person do it 
isn't as much of, and now that you've seen it mutated and changed and looked at from different angles over the years and years and years. So I totally understand that if you're sort of coming at it like post post Duke and I, which was a, like a big book, a big sea change, you you don't recognize that the, the waters are different now. Yeah. So I think I think that's the thing and that the book still has to hold up to just reading it as a book like any other book, because mm-hmm. it can't have this revolutionary sort of power. Right. And do you know, but you don't think it's good now? No, I think it's good. I think uh-huh. it's as good as the other Bridgertons. It's not my favorite Bridgerton. What is your favorite Bridgerton? The uh, the first one I read, the oh, fourth yeah. book. Oh, yeah, Romancing Mr. Bridgerton. Romancing Mr. Bridgerton. And we know your fir- your favorite is is On the Way to the Wedding, which blew all our listeners' minds. <laughs> yeah, I don't... Gregory, really? <laughs> I, didn't, I don't think I hated Gregory as much as everyone else hated Gregory. But also, it's like, I feel like I used to be a nanny to five, like, truly psychotic children, all boys. And so I feel like I just, like, have a love for those, like, little twerps more than uh, the average person. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, twerps in general. I, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think it, I, I would say it holds up and I really loved, I really loved this book and I really enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to. And something that I think that happens in the Bridgertons that I really like is people aren't given these like wild backstories or these wild wounds because I think it's like, ultimately, all these romances are about two people who have been wounded by the world in some way coming together and, and overcoming those through the relationship they have with each other. And I think all of like Simon's is, is particularly profound in that, like his speech and his neglect from his father and not knowing his mother I'm so thankful that he had Nurse Hopkins, who seemed to be like a very loving and lovely woman, because I'm like, gee, mm-hmm. this poor child, otherwise he would turn and have like, it would have been really bad. But Daphne's issue is like one that I feel like I could recognize in like friends and stuff where it's like, you know, it's really hard when you have been around a group of people, they see you a certain way for most of your life. And then all of a sudden you want them to see you in a different way. And they don't. And you feel inadequate because of that. Um, And I was like, that's so interesting, because that's just like a, pr- a pretty small thing in the scheme of what issues could be that would prevent someone from from falling in love or being whole in a relationship. But it's like, but that's like a big thing. And and I thought it was a really interesting to have the first book of the series just be about a woman who is like too much one of the guys in a way that also isn't like cool girl status, which I find to be obviously pretty nauseating. But I think it felt like in a very natural way of just like the people you grow up with see you a certain way. And then it becomes almost impossible to change that after a certain stage. When I think also like Daphne's dreams were pretty small. It's like she wanted to get married to someone that she liked and then have a family. You know what I mean? She didn't have these sort of like lofty goals, which is like, listen, I love reading about women who have those goals. But then I also think it's it's something quite nice to have somebody be like, no, I just kind of want to be a I mean, this is sort of the same thing with Gregory, where it's like, I just kind of want to be have a family and be able to support that family. And that's it. <laughs> and yeah. I think there's something 
really sweet about that. And, you know, I've been talking about that with some of my pen pals about how hard it is when you don't have a big dream and it feels like everybody else around you does. You know, and I liked that aspect of I Daphne just seemed like I think she's my favorite female Bridgerton. Really? Well, Penelope is not a Bridgerton until she gets married. That's true. Um, but yeah, I just thought that she just I don't know, for some reason she just reminded me of like my, my cousin Jessica, and I was like, oh, I love Jessica. I love Daphne. So. What about Hyacinth? Oh, yeah, see, yeah. I, but can you imagine being stuck in an elevator with Hyacinth? I think that's what I think of. And I could not. I respect that's... Hyacinth and I do love a brat. But yeah, she's not it. That is such a great test. You know what we have on this podcast, obviously, if you listen, is would you fuck them? Mm-hmm. I think a great question is would you want to be in the, an elevator with them? is such an interesting question because sometimes the answer to the first one is yes and the answer to the second one is no yeah right would you want to be stuck in an elevator with somebody yeah i feel like if you were stuck in an elevator with daphne you'd end up just like having a nice conversation a bit of a laugh and then hyacinth would be like taking the elevator apart oh my you would have to like hold her down yeah, she'd be trying to figure crawl like crawl through the the top and all, and also she'd also be very confused as to what an elevator was. <laughs> yeah, and then she would be insulting you for some reason. Um, well, I also think so, you know, uh so Simon and Daphne have come up with this plan to fake date, which is always a great plan that like never works out <laughs> or no. always ends the same way. Um, they're also have been basically instantly attracted to, to each other. I mean, let, wait, we have to talk about their meet cute, which I think is like an all time great romance meet cute. Which she almost, where she almost gets assaulted by Nigel. Well, and then she cold cocks him. Yeah. Knocks him out. And then she's like, I don't want to just leave him here. And then eventually they're like, well, let's just kind of leave him here. <laughs> well, cause first he was out cold. And so then Simon was like, okay, well, let's bring um, my carriage around, but you have to go hide in the library. And I don't, he was coming up with this like big complicated plan. And she was like, no, I don't know. She kept going back and forth. Yeah. And then Uh he started waking up and they were like, uh, let's just leave him on this couch. I just thought it was like a really cute way to introduce two characters and show sort of their problem solving skills. Um, and Nigel Baerbrook's such a piece of shit. So like, I don't mind that he constantly is getting um punched yes and then also it is a good uh later in the book daphne punches simon in the eye so yep well it's it's funny with the whole nigel thing during that whole situation simon was very much having a hard time not making a move on her because he was so attracted to her right I mean, she sounded super hot, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The way they describe her in this book is very, very attractive. So, yeah. So then they have this ruse. And then, of course, you know, I guess Simon's plan is just, like, always pull out whenever he's with, like, a girlfriend or anyone. I think it's sweet. You see Simon keep showing up to more and more balls that, that Daphne's like, oh, you really didn't need to show up to this one. And then he takes her out in the back garden or she leads him into the back garden, which I love, too. Well, that's the big thing. Yeah, she leads him. Mm -hmm. She gets him to compromise her. 
Well, I don't think she's not thinking of compromising necessarily. Like she's not trying to get caught. Cause I think that's something that happens in these books sometimes like intentional compromisation. So they have to get married. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't happen here. Here it is just like Anthony happens to find them. Cause Anthony's like obsessed with the two of them dating because like Anthony's such a rake. And I guess he and Simon used to just like cut the, a rug together. <laughs> and so well, he's a rug, like, that's, that's a good way to say it. <laughs> Were they cutting the same rug at the same time? I mean, I'm sure it happened. I don't think there's not a, there's a non-zero chance that that happened. Well, because well, we I, forgot yeah. to mention that, like you like you were saying, uh, Simon and and Anthony were friends, mm-hmm. and so that adds the other wrinkle to this because dating a friend's sister is a big deal. Yes, and Simon and knows an- it too. And Anthony thinks it's a big deal. Yes. Anthony hates it. Yeah. Which is, I do, it is it is interesting to sort of explore that, like, double standard that men seem to, that some men have about, like, oh, I can treat women however I want, but then that guy can't treat my, like, sister the way that I treat all other women. It's like, well, nobody, like, everybody's somebody's, like, sister or daughter. Like, you kind of have to treat all women with respect. To, to make a woman into say a daughter and make her separate from other women is so minimizing. Right. And they don't realize that you married a woman, but didn't realize you needed to respect women until you had a daughter. That's very late (laughs) in life that you are, you have a daughter. Like there are places in the book where Simon does treat Daphne, like not great, but like for the, while they're courting, like Simon doesn't do anything like, weird you know what i mean like he does treat her with like a lot of respect and is like a good like suitor to her Uh, so then you know they get hot and heavy in the garden and anthony finds them starts beating up (laughs) simon simon refuses to marry daphne daphne's sort of like oh i didn't realize that was that bad you know yeah and then they decide to duel at dawn Mm -hmm. and simon is like Simon is so over the top with his self-pity that it is funny because he's like, I guess I'll just die then. (laughs) It's like, calm down, sad boy. Like, this is, it's not the worst thing in the world. And also, like, you're not going to allow yourself to die. This is our first duel in a book we've read. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly read other books with duels, but... Yeah, this is it, the first. Yeah, that it's hard because read. you've read so many romances outside of this show. Mm-hmm. I've only read the romances for this show, but they can fall out of my mind so quickly that I'm sure there's listeners who are like, "There's been you've read books with twenty duels," uh, <laughs> but like I think this is the only book that we've read, and you know, of course, email us if I'm wrong with a a historical duel. Yeah, I mean, during our hiatus, I have been reading so many romance, like other romance books, so it's hard to say. I mean, I think my most famous and most favorite duel is Nine Rules to Break When Romancing a Rake by Sarah McLean. It sort of ends at a duel, and it's uh, fantastic. So um, if that's your thing. But yeah, so and then Daphne comes in and saves the day and and Simon sort of agrees to marry her. Mm hmm. 
And it's one of those things, too, that I do love when the hero is like, I guess I have to marry her. And it secretly is like, I'm fucking pumped to marry them. Like, I'm happy that my hand was forced sort of a thing. Yes. Having a decision made for you. Mm -hmm. And then Daphne's mother really fucking fails her and is uncomfortable talking to her daughter about sex. And so just doesn't, basically. So... That is Violet, who we've all come to know and love. Mm-hmm. And she drops the ball in a big way, like you said here, which was surprising to me because, you know, having read the other ones where she's such a, a fountain of sage wisdom. Uh, she, yeah, she really should have got her equipped. Yeah. And it and really does her a major disservice, which is I've been thinking about this a lot lately, just sort of like sexuality and what we don't talk about as it pertains to to childbirth or infertility or all these like sort of big questions that like women have to go through that are all really cloaked in silence. Um, and why that is, you know, why it is such a secret. And I think there's something gained societally from obviously from keeping women in the dark. Otherwise I think people wouldn't be so hell bent on doing it. But I think a lot of it has to do with like people not wanting to acknowledge how difficult childbirth is and the aftermath and all that goes into it. So there's this sort of like, well, you'll find out when you, when you do it or something like that, that does a real disservice. Cause I feel like if we could as a society talk more openly about the challenges um, that I think women would feel less alone when they inevitably hit whatever the challenge is in childbirth or conception or sort of whatever aspect that, that you might be having difficult with, or even just deciding to not have children. I think, um, you know, none of those are, are very, are very often discussed publicly. And I think, you know, with Daphne going into a marriage this ignorant about her own body and just sexual reproduction and everything like that, it's like, it's really sad. And I think it's played for kind of like laughs. And obviously it's a big plot point that she doesn't really know what's going on. But it's like, it, it is really sad and, and upsetting. And I think there is certainly a lot of women who probably entered into marriage with this level of knowledge. Um, but it, it bummed me out a little bit. I, I remember a friend of mine, I went to visit her like a few weeks after she had her baby. This was a few years ago. Um, and she was trying to breastfeed. And obviously if you try, if you want to breastfeed or you choose not to breastfeed, it's a hundred percent your choice. This isn't a judgment thing, but she was trying really hard to breastfeed and it was really hard for her for a few reasons. And I just said to her, I was like, you know, it's really hard for a lot of women. It's, it's, it's a hard thing to do. And she started crying and she's like, nobody's told me that everybody says it's natural. Everybody says that I'm supposed to just know. And the baby's supposed to know. And I felt like a failure. And it broke my heart because it's like, you know, she didn't feel comfortable saying like, this isn't working for me, you know, Mm -hmm. or am I alone in this being wrong and this feeling like it's not working, you know? And, And I think there's all of that is wrapped up into obviously controlling women's sexuality, because I think it's like, if you don't tell, and this is more, obviously sexuality has changed since, you know, 1813 when this book took place. Um, 
so sort of talking more about like why it was back then, but it's like, if you control women's sexuality, then, then you can control, you know, then you can kind of control them and, and you control that by keeping them a hundred percent in the dark and not letting them know about contraceptives and not letting them know about exactly how you conceive. And that knowledge was known, but it, and it was known by, you know, more men than women or, or just certain women that uh, women in society weren't necessarily allowed to talk to. So to, to keep all that information really secret and, um, you know, and I, and I just found this to be a, you know, those sort of explorations of women's sexuality and the secrecy around childbirth and the secrecy around, uh, conception to be a very interesting thing to explore in this otherwise like pretty fluffy book. Do, do we want to talk about the scene? Yeah. So basically, in case you haven't read the book, so Simon basically has decided that the line ends with him because his father was such a piece of shit and and tells Daphne he can't have children. Um, She takes that to mean that he is impotent or that he like physically can't have children. And she's like, I'm OK with that fact because she loves him. So they get married. And then he, for two weeks, they just, like, have a ton of sex because they just got married and they're just, like, two hot people in love. So, like, obviously. And every time he pulls out and she doesn't understand what is happening there, he really plays on her ignorance about the act. Um, And she finally realizes kind of through something that said to her that what needs to happen, he needs to come inside of her hadn't occurred to her before that moment like that was what was happening he was pulling out so she feels like he's keeping this secret from her and he's sort of like betraying her because he didn't really explain why he said he couldn't have children it's not a couldn't it's a wouldn't and is obviously like incredibly hurt by this fact so she says basically like listen if you are going to lie to me about having sex and the reasons for sex and not wanting children and all these things. Cause he never really is coming clean to her about why he also doesn't want children. Then she just basically like refuses to see him. He gets shit faced, goes out in the town, beats up some sailors <laughs> <laughs> and comes home and wants to be with her. Cause he, he loves her and is sauced and comes and lays in the bed with her. And then she, it's, it's hard to know exactly what her thought process is because you're in her point of view as she does it. And then you're also in her point of view after where she's looking back on herself at what she did and when she made decisions she made. And you see that she's lying to herself about what those decisions were. And she basically like climbs on top of them. They're having sex. He's into the sex part. But then at the end where he normally pulls out, she like refuses to let him pull out. Yeah, she she hunkers down. He he says no. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to come inside her, and then and then sh- he does. Mm-hmm. Full disclosure. Uh, again, I don't spoil myself for any of these things. I knew there was some sort of scene of assault that people took umbrage with. So much so that like you didn't want to do this book. So mm-hmm. I I I thought okay, it must be something hellacious and it made me think that why would they then have this first book be the one that they adapt for the netflix first season if there's something so egregious in here 
Because mm-hmm. that was the thing that was confusing me is that we've read books that have some messed up stuff in it. And like really messed up that I like, I mean, just, I mean, even when you go back to um, Ice Planet Barbarians, mm-hmm. like there's an assault at the beginning of that, that was so harsh that I was at the beginning of this thinking, Oh, I don't want to, I don't know if I want to do this podcast, if these are the kind of things that I'm going to have to read. Right. So what was the reason that you didn't want to do this book and what made this scene so much of a hot button that you wanted to avoid it and i'm not trying to put you on the spot because i i I have opinions on like what actually happened in here and my my response to it but i'm just very curious as to why this seemed like such a a a big 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 like stay away yeah i mean i think that's a really valid question and you're right i think we have read other things that are like pretty messed up um, and I think it, you know, in Ice Planet Barbarians, those weren't the main characters doing that to each other. So I think that also changes things. Other times that there's been sexual assault in books, it has been off the page or previous or, um, you know, it, it hasn't necessarily been the main characters perpetrating it on each other. We talked about Prisoner of My Desire before we started recording. And so it's, there's there was that book, but... I feel like that book, it was also played a little bit like, isn't this kind of like wild? And isn't this kind of like super camp and not supposed to be realistic? Where I feel like this book is so grounded in reality um, that I think you take the ignorance of Daphne about sex, how her husband has taken advantage of that fact to his own end. And instead of educating his wife about sex and what he's doing just sort of like allows her to stay ignorant I found that to be kind of gross and then the way that the scene is handled where it is very obvious like him expressing he does not want that and her acknowledging that he doesn't want it but deciding like her needs are greater in that moment and so she's not going to stop was really brutal in a way that I would not have expected in a, in a Bridgerton book, in a Quinn book. It, and obviously, you know, acknowledging that this was written 20 years ago where um, this kind of sexual assault maybe wasn't seen in the same way it is now. But I think ultimately it's like, you know, if you agree to one kind of sex and then a different kind of sex happens and you express that you don't want that other kind of sex to happen and it still does like that is assault even you know what I mean even if you consented to a certain to a certain level you aren't consenting across the board and I think she had an intimate knowledge of Simon and what he wanted sexually that she knew that was not something that he was prepared to consent to and she didn't care and I think it's like also the way that each character reacts to it. They react to it as a an assault. Simon leaves for two months and he has a lot of complicated feelings about towards Daphne based on what happens. And I feel like Daphne's lack of understanding. And obviously this is a young girl who's, you know, 20 years old. She is pretty ignorant about all things sex. I imagine she is also pretty ignorant about the gravity of what she has done. Um, and is allowed to be like, 
that tracks, you know what I mean? Like she doesn't know much about sex. She just sort of realized what had been happening. Her husband has been lying to her, keeping her in the dark. Like all of these things do matter character wise, but I feel like the, the assault or the scene itself is, is so disturbing that I think, um, you know, thinking back to reading this book, I was like, I don't, I don't know that we are necessarily equipped to talk about that in the way that it needs to be talked about, like intimate partner violence in that way. And um, I mean, that was that was kind of it. I think what's happened before, you know, Longshot was obviously a particularly brutal book to read, although obviously worth it, um, that I didn't realize what we were reading until we were reading it. And I think knowing what this book was and knowing... I think it just made me shy away from it for that reason that I was sort of like, if we if we don't have to talk about this, I don't want to. Ultimately, am I happy we're talking about it now? Like, yes, I think this book is 100% worth reading. I think obviously everyone should know going into it what that scene is because it is, you know, it can be triggering and it's, um and it is upsetting. I don't think that that scene negates the power of the book. I think the book is still really, really worth reading. I don't know. Does that make sense? I feel like I just talked for too long. No, absolutely. No. And I, I asked you why, and you told me, which is great because that's, Mm -hmm. so I'll kind of just tell you my journey. Cause obviously, like I said before, I don't try to spoil myself. So I do feel like, unfortunately that the idea of what was coming, that something was coming put a shadow on this book that I would prefer that it didn't have because Mm -hmm. even at the beginning, I'm not enjoying myself because the whole thing with Nigel, I'm thinking, Oh, is this the assault? Is this the thing that is going to be so problematic that I can't enjoy this book? So it's when, you know how sometimes you'll read a, a movie review and they say, we won't spoil the, the twist. Well, that's spoiling it because I didn't know there was a twist and now I'm looking for a twist. So you did right. spoil it. So thank thank you for that. Mm-hmm. So here, here's me reading this and just being like, when is this horrible thing going to happen? Which I think is a bad way to read any sort of book. Mm-hmm. And then I get to the scene and there is so many layers to it that make it, I think worse than the other things we've read because all of the reasons you've mentioned, the fact that they're intimate partners, the fact that she knows for a fact he doesn't want to do this. Like, Mm -hmm. this is not a thing that she is, well, he waffles on it. It is one of his character traits that he does not want to have kids. Mm -hmm. So that is really dastardly. But there was and see that that's the thing about this podcast and and it it makes me think about my biases like how I actually feel and when I figured out that it was a female on male assault my first reaction was okay well this isn't as big of a deal mm. right and and you know listen I'm admitting this because I think it's important to because that is, I think, the way a lot of people think, it's not a good way to think because assault can happen to anybody, mm-hmm. right? And so when I when that thought crossed my mind, 
when I started reading this and that happened and I understood the weight of it plot wise. Then I had to sit in it and think, why did I think, why was I so glib about it being a female on male? What, where does that come from? I think that comes from, you know, not wanting to admit that that's possible, not wanting to admit that that as a, a man, as a guy, you can be assaulted and feel the way that Simon felt, mm-hmm. right? Because like you said, he's devastated by it. This is a betrayal. And mm-hmm. since a lot of times men aren't physically, they can be physically overpowered or they can be emotionally overpowered. All these things that they don't want to admit can happen to them. Mm-hmm. So that is a very horrible thing to happen to anybody. But it, it it's it's not happened to me, thank God. So I don't have that angle to come from. But there was something that made me really sad that that was my reaction, that I didn't think it was a big a deal as if, say, Nigel would have, you know, assaulted Daphne. Mm-hmm. To me, that would have been so disgusting. And I do think this is really despicable, but I didn't have the visceral reaction that I would if it was a male-on-female act of sexual assault. You know, and I think that's definitely an issue. That's something that 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 I need to deal with and I need to think about because no assault is okay. And no assault is better or more okay than other ones, you know? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I mean I and also I think it's like I, I'm happy that you sort of admitted that. And I think that that's probably, uh, you know, not an uncommon thought process that I think is, um, you know, needs to be explored and I think needs to be acknowledged. And obviously men can be assaulted, men are assaulted. And I think it's important to talk about that as well. I think anytime that there are intimate relationships, there's a possibility of, of things going wrong, <laughs> you know, so in any direction. Yeah, and I understand... And I understand, too, now why it could taint these characters for certain people, because it is, I mean, again, he keeps her in the dark and still has sex with her mm-hmm. and 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 doesn't explain what's happening. Mm-hmm. And then she, yeah, she, like, gets impregnated by him unwilling, like, uh, against his will. That, that's... And that's such a huge deal because that life is forever. If they have that baby, I mean, there wasn't any right to choose back then. Like, you have that kid. Mm -hmm. So there's no way that, you know, he has now a kid with somebody who assaulted him. That's pretty dark, you know? But they obviously, you know, it ends up that they live happily ever after. They have more than one kid. They are looked at as this, like, great couple but it is, it is, it's going to be interesting not to bring it to the show, but it's going to be very interesting to see how, what they create to put in the place of this. Right. Because I because don't it's such think a they'll huge, do it. Yeah. It's such a, well, they can't, I don't, do you, because how much of this conversation, because it's always interesting to me because I'm, I don't live online. A lot of people live online. I really don't. And there is a difference between how people perceive certain cultural artifacts online and how the general public does. So do you think that this scene and this part of this book is 
mainstream looked at as super problematic or is it internet wise a big hot button issue that might not have crossed over because you're more online i mean again twitter i have no access instagram (laughs) barely check but you know emails read them but what is your what is your take on this i don't know like for yeah it's so i mean it's such an impossible thing to answer because it's like because I am online and I feel like this scene in the Duke and I has talked about like not infrequently. And I feel like it's just something that like everybody knows, but then like last week, somebody messaged me about a post that someone had, like, does no one know about this, uh, this gross assault scene in the Duke and I, no one talks about it. And then I was like, that's so bizarre because I'm like, I hear about it constantly. Like, I don't know. Um, but I think also knowing the people who are doing the show, um, I mean, not specifically, but just that it's like generally it's Shondaland, I would be surprised if that wasn't at a minimum, like a conversation to be had. Um, you know, not to slag off another show, but like Outlander, they don't let a rape happen in that show without explore in those books without exploring it extensively in the show. So I feel like if it was that, group making the Bridgertons, I would be like 100% they're going to keep it in. Um, But I think as much as the show is going to be inspired by, I, I, I would be surprised if that scene is something they keep. I think it's not, you know what I mean? It's like, I think that that can be found out. You can have that emotional beat, I think in other ways. And I, and I have a feeling they'll choose to do it another way. Yeah, that'll be very interesting because there are, I mean, there are, like you said, Outlander is a good example. I've never watched it, but I've heard about it, the controversies about that show. There are some shows that are pulpy and soapy and do those kind of things. It's just what makes this so incongruous. See, I went for it and I shouldn't have. God damn it. <laughs> I thought I could do it. I can't say that word. Where the dissonance comes in. is that the rest of the Bridgertons like it's it's there are dark things that happen but there are they are fun and light yeah you know and this does seem kind of just more weighty and darker than I think it was intended to be as well I mean she definitely wanted to tackle this and I think it was bold to tackle something like this but I don't think you know the the I think it's positive because culture has moved towards a place where this has become something that is a lightning rod. So th- that's a positivity where, you know, it God, if I, in 2000, I probably wouldn't have blinked an eye at this at all if I read it. Yeah. I think that's the thing too, just about romance in general is it always tends to be ahead of the culture and ahead of the cultural discussions. So I feel like we were having these, conversations about consent a while ago um and so we were sort of acknowledging that these things are problems and problematic in the books but uh, like i you know i think it's like also it's like does anything move forward without people trying to push the boundaries and maybe pushing too far and then we see where the line is because somebody's crossed the line i you know what i mean i think that's also where it is and i, I don't believe in necessarily like 
pushing boundaries for the sake of pushing boundaries. But I do think it's like, it's hard to really grow as a genre if you aren't like, okay, well, is this too far? Oh, yep. Actually, this is too far. You know what I mean? And I think that she's also, I I think that this has helped as well by the author sort of acknowledging that this was too far. And and also the thing is, is that this is, this situation is born from Daphne's ignorance when it comes to sex and procreation. Mm -hmm. So it comes from an issue that needs to be tackled because that's how you get issues like this is ignorance is Mm -hmm. not understanding the impact of what you do in the bedroom to your partner. Like that's why you need to be educated about sex. You, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you have to have sex if you don't want to have sex. That means that you need to just know about it. You need to know about protection. You need to know about what you can and cannot do in order to protect yourself You know, I I think that's the important thing. And I think that's where this conversation should really be is that this all stems from her ignorance. And if Mm -hmm. you have people ignorant about sex, you're going to have these situations and you're going to have these situations no matter what. But I think they will be lessened. I just believe they'll be lessened if more people know about it and are educated about these kind of things. And also just like conversations about consent and conversations about what assault can be and it's like assault can be somebody in an alley and then assault can be between a married couple as well and I think that increasing those conversations and and having those difficult conversations with people are is also really important as well to understand why somebody could feel violated even though it's like you know we were dating or whatever and then this this thing happened and I don't feel right about it you know so I think like opening up those discussions is always very important as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you got to have a conversation as to what is too far for somebody. Mm-hmm. And you both should be open to this conversation because yes. like, as we've seen it, we saw in this scene, just because you say, okay to sex does not mean every form of sex is okay. And on the table, it's not mm-hmm. a blanket. Yes. To everything. And if you have those conversations ahead of time, that takes out some of the, well, if I try this, what's going to happen? Or if I do this, is this going to be okay? It's like, just be open and say, I don't like that. Don't do mm-hmm. that, please. Or whatever. However you want to have a conversation with your, it doesn't have to be clinical. It could just be a fun conversation about kinks or a fun conversation about what you like and what you don't like. Mm-hmm. And, and those kind of conversations can really alleviate a lot of tension, alleviate, and people will be like, well, that's not sexy. Eh, well, it is sexy to talk about sex with the person you're going to have sex with. I think that's sexy, even if it's them saying, I don't like doing that. You're still talking about sex with someone, and that's <laughs> cool. Right. I always found that to be such a strange thing because it is like, yeah, talking about the things that turn you on is good. And also it's like, why would you not want to know if there's something your partner doesn't like? Like, wouldn't that be important information for you as somebody who's trying to give your partner pleasure, like that they are not into something or they're not ready for something? You know what I mean? It's like, I I feel like that is sexy. Yeah, I always found that such a bizarre um, criticism of of talking about consent. Yeah. Well, as a people Um, pleaser, that's all I want to (laughs) know. 
Um, I, it feels weird to do would you fuck them after this? So do you want to do would you be stuck in an elevator with them? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we still, we could still stick to, because it is true. It's like, does it, I mean, let's do both because I like both. But do, would you, I mean, knowing what you know about both of them, would you fuck them? I mean, I think the the deeper part of this question is basically like, did you find the character sexy? And yes. I would say yes and yes. I agree. I think they're sexy. I think mm-hmm. they're, the sex stuff, uh, aside from that, was sexy. Right. And I think once everyone everyone had everything on the table, it seemed like they had a very good sex life and they were very into each other and they were both very good at sex. So... Um, as for the elevator, I, I, Simon would be cool. I'd want to hear about his travels. I'd want to mm-hmm. be, I'd want to hear about all the rake stuff because, you know, Guy dude's talk. talking to dids. <laughs> and Daphne, yeah, she seems, I mean, she's not my favorite, but I do think that she, she is fun. And I do think I'd be fine stuck in an elevator with her. I feel like I'd like to be stuck in an elevator with Daphne, with Simon. I feel like he's just so quiet and internal that I would end up talking way too much. I would end up just confessing secrets to him because I would need to fill the silence. And it would be embarrassing yeah. for me and for him. Hmm. To save us both from that, I will say maybe no elevator. Um. All right. Should we do a Goodreads list? Let's do it. Hot and steamy sensual historical romance books. I would say, yeah. Best ever historical romance novels. People have said that it that it definitely is. So I would say yes. I agree. I think if it's like if you're compiling a list of romance novels you need to read, historicals, this would be on it. Um, best rom-com books. Yeah. Dukes, bring them on. Well, this is one with Dukes. <laughs> best historical romances where the quiet, unusual girl gets the guy. <sighs> No, she's not quiet no. or unusual. No, just no. Stop. Go uh, back to listen to our other episodes <laughs> out of order, and you'll <laughs> you'll understand why we had the reaction to this list. Yeah, best rogue rake romance books. He is a rake. Best historical romances, married couples. Yeah, they do get married. I like books where the couple is married and then they still have to figure shit out. Like the happily ever after being a marriage, I feel like is, you know, it's been done. Yes. Uh, historical romance, marriage, a convenience slash arranged marriage. No. They, they have a relationship of convenience. Mm. Best romances with spinsters, wallflowers or old maids. No, she's, no. she's none of those things. She's not even close to being a spinster. She's 20, right? Yeah. Like, what do you want from her? Jeez, she's 20. Let her have a life. Yeah, who who, <laughs> who thinks she's an old maid? I don't know. Best of the best romance novels of the 20th century. Yep. Well, it was written in 2000. So oh, so we'll be going by, it's not... Yeah, no, I mean, 20, I think 2000 is the 20th there, century. Maybe. The new century starts with 2001. Does it? I believe so. All right, well, then it's in there. Yeah, the 21st century started on January 1st, 2001. All right, you got it then. Boom. Falling in love with best friend, best friend's brother, brother's best friend. Okay, so 
this one always confuses me. <laughs> Just because it's a lot. So it's not she's not best friends with him. He's not her well, no, I guess her brother, they're not really best friends, but they're really good friends, so yes. Yeah. Tortured heroes of historical romance. Uh yeah, he's tortured. Books with disabled heroes. So speech impediment, mm-hmm. I guess, would fall under that category. Best book boyfriends. I don't know if Simon's a the no. best. I he has say, a l- no, especially because as a boyfriend, he has a lot of of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe if they're mar- after they're married for a long time, he can work out his issues. But yeah, definitely not best boyfriend. Historical romance where Heron gets pregnant in large part of the story. She doesn't get pregnant at all in the book. No. It's not until like later in the epilogues. I I guess the thing is the spirit of it is like pregnancy is a huge talking point. But I will say this list, it shouldn't be on the list because it's not accurate. Happy, witty, and fun historical romance novels. I mean, I would say witty. And I, yeah, I would keep it on that list, actually. Yeah, it is, it is in its essence, a fun, fun book. Virgin heroines, alpha males. He ain't an alpha. No, he's not an alpha. Simon ain't no alpha. Lords, dukes, rakes, oh my. Yeah, he is a duke and a rake. So, oh my. <laughs> Best friends to lovers romance, male, female. They're not best friends. No. Or, again, because this was on the way to the wedding was on this list, too. Is it best friends to lovers romance? Like, I guess they are friends, but they are sexually attracted to each other from the beginning. So I would say no. They need to change this list because it's I I always do that. I did it <laughs> last time and I, I got fooled again. A starchy hero gets unstarched. I, is, he's not really starchy, I don't think. I think he is from an outward perspective because he is so, um, he speaks so infrequently because of the stutter that he is seen as being, I think, very aloof and proper in a uh-huh. way that like internally, I don't know if that's who he is, but that's sort of like his vibe. So I, I think it works. Okay. King of the betas, best beta romance hero, male, female. Even that, like, I don't know if he's a beta, right? Yeah. I mean, I think I let's move away from the alpha and the beta thing, I think. I mean, I think there are some, like, extreme alphas. But I think trying to put everybody into one of two categories is sort of like, you know, I don't think it's necessary. I would say he is a beta. And, you know, like I like we said before, when Sarah McLean was on talking about To Sir Philip With Love, she talked about how Julia basically invented the beta hero with this series. So I would say... In that sense, him being the first Bridgerton hero, then he is king of the betas in that if he was like the prototypical beta. Yeah. Heroes here are so hot you nearly swoon historical romance. He seemed very hot. Yeah, he was very attractive. Recommendations for new romance readers. I think there's going to be a lot of people who are reading this as their first romance. And, you know, I don't hate it. I think that's a good thing. It's a good introduction. And then finally, books that should be made into movies. Well, not a movie. Even but better. Even, be- even better? No. TV's not better than movies. I, I beg to differ. I, I just dropped a TV. huge bomb that we can't get into. <laughs> I know. TV, I yeah. Agree to disagree. Um, yes. All right, Clayton. 
what are your tropes? Bad dad. Jeez, oh man. Um, bad dad uh, marrying a friend of your brother. We've got the first duel as opposed to, you know, somebody's going to say that we've already read a duel. But for <laughs> me right now, big duel action. We've got close family, big family, of course, because we're talking about the Bridgertons. A fake relationship. Rake and a heroine who is a virgin and also knows nothing about sex. (laughs) Those are my tropes. Erin, what are your tropes? Uh, My tropes are in love with best friend sibling, fake relationship, compromised, dual, bad dads, refusing to have children, a rake and a virgin, Hera not knowing about sex, big families, first book in a series, Heroin is one of the guys. The line ends with me. Lonely Dukes, because poor Simon had no friends and no family and was all alone until he went to Eton. Hero with a stutter, meddling brothers, magic baby. Magic baby, I feel like, is when babies appear and disappear based on <laughs> what, what is necessary for the plot. Which I guess is every baby in a book because it's always just the author deciding when there's going to be a baby. But I feel like this, her period was very late. She thought she was pregnant. That's what brought Simon home. But then ultimately, she was not pregnant because I think that would have been a lot for that baby to have to deal with. So there's all that. Um... And then period sex, because when he comes home, she says she started a period two days ago and they proceed to have a lot of sex that day. So uh, they were having sex while she was on the rag, which I think is great and normalized period sex. You got to. Mm-hmm. If, if, if you don't take anything from this podcast, <laughs> that's what you should be taking from this entire hour and 20 minutes is normalized period sex. If... It's something that your partner is okay with. Yeah. Of course, if it's something your partner's okay with. But like, if listen, if you're both into it, then it can be great. It's up to you. Exactly. All right, Clayton, what has you swooning this week? And I imagine we could be having the same swoon. Well, you know, we're actually not because I haven't had a chance to really dive into it. So I can't with all, you know, with my full heart swoon about it. But we can talk about it when you swoon about it. But I do want to swoon about an album. And it is an album called Silver Ladders by an artist named Mary Lattimore. I just found out about this album. It's an instrumental album. And I've been looking for a lot of instrumental albums because I'm doing a lot of writing lately out in mm-hmm. the barn. And I like to have a little bit of ambient music. And I don't want necessarily something that that is background because I think that's a lot of people say, oh, it's background music. It's not. Certain instrumental albums can spark ideas and kind of they're not there in the background but they're there to move you along so you're like kind of riding a wave with them so it's very Mm -hmm. important to find a specific sort of instrumental album and i was reading a lot of end of year best lists which is my favorite time when it comes to finding new music because i'm just loading up on it and this was one of those albums that was recommended and named as one of the best of 2020 so it's called Silver Ladders by Mary Lattimore. If you're looking for instrumental albums to either help you meditate, help you, you know, feel calm, things like that, it's an engaging album. So don't get me wrong. I listen to it even when I'm not writing. I will listen to it just to kind of flow with it. Mm -hmm. But 
I recommend it highly. I'm pretty addicted to this to this album at this point. So I would say that is what I'm swooning about. And definitely check it out if you're into something like that. Nice. That's great. I'm always looking for those kind of albums, too. I think you'd like it. I think you definitely would like it. Yeah. I do the Phantom Thread soundtrack, which is good. That's great. I mean, Johnny Greenwood. That's a, mm-hmm. That is a perfect movie, by the way, too. So I still haven't watched I need to watch it. Oh, it's the... It's the funniest movie of what was that two years ago? Mm-hmm. I think. I think it was two years ago. It's my it's it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, and I love Danny Day Lewis. So like, I don't know why I have. It's just one of those things that is just like I want to watch it, but I just have not yet. But I need to. It's it's definitely like a you have you just have to be in the right mood. Mm-hmm. But once you are, there's no better movie. Nice. So, Aaron, what do you what? <clears throat> Aaron, <laughs> what has you swooning? Um, uh, Evermore by Taylor Swift. She dropped another album. I mean, it's very all the TikTok kids, the only people I listen to now, are adamant that this is a trilogy and that the third one is going to be called Woodvale for some reason. Um, so this is the second, uh, after folklore, she dropped Evermore, which is an amazing album. I love it. I feel like people are naturally comparing it to folklore. I think they're just such great companion pieces. I wouldn't say that I like one more than the other, but I think Evermore is, is very, very strong. Um, you know, I think it's, it's the perfect music for listening to right now. I found a Spotify playlist that is basically just the two albums together <laughs> that I've just been listening to basically nonstop around the house. It's perfect house music. Um, not house music as in dance music, house music as in like <laughs> you're wandering around your house and you want to just listen to something nice, but not, you know, too much. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, it's funny because like Taylor Swift as a person, I feel like I have a lot of issues with <laughs> and I things that she's done and things that she said that I feel like I'm not, you know, such a fan of. But I think musically, she is such an insane talent. Um, and 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 I love her music so much, especially these two albums. So I will say uh that. And then also a friend of mine who is a folk singer, she goes by the name The Little Miss. Um, just released a song called Spring Cleaning. She is very, she has the most beautiful voice. She is, um, she sings in a very like American folk sort of way, a very like deep, very soulful. Um, It's a beautiful song. Um, So if you're looking for a new female singer to support um, the Little Miss is, is, is a really beautiful singer. And I really love her music a lot. You know, Taylor Swift doesn't necessarily need your support. She'll be fine either way. But I think it's it's a great no, album. Tay Tay needs your support because there's a lot of haters out there. I, yeah, I think she's doing cool. She's doing okay though. <laughs> we could have a whole conversation about this because I do agree. I I'm I'm a big Taylor Swift fan, mm-hmm. and believe me, I didn't want to be. Like <laughs> I I didn't I did not want to because she was so part of the culture like even her early albums those songs like love song all those songs Mm -hmm. were so omnipresent and it wasn't until red came out that i thought oh this is like a a great artist and then i went back and listened to those old albums and i was like she's always been great 
Yeah. And and there's there are things about her and the things she like you said, all those things, they can be taken into account with people who don't like her. But when you look at the body of work, people, you look at the body of work, it's it's insane if you still can't at least say that she is a one of a kind artist. Yeah, she's a generational, like once in a generation artist, I think. She's it, yeah. yeah. So I mean, again, we can't get into this because that's that's a whole other podcast, which maybe <laughs> we should do. Just talk about listen, if you want to hear us just talk about Taylor Swift, um, we will. <laughs> yes. Let us gladly. Know. Yeah. We might we have inflict a lot of this opinions. podcast upon this uh, uh, upon the uh the feed. Yeah, the feed. Yeah, we're going to inflict this on the feed. <laughs> Which <laughs> but is no, something you never want to hear. Yeah, I mean, she is... Fam- and also, what? yeah, this is a bigger conversation. But I do think, you know, the pendulum swim uh, swinging between um, basically ignoring anything negative of an artist or a famous person did to then swinging the other way to really being hyper, hyper critical about it. Like, I do think there needs to be room for nuance and to be able to look at somebody as a whole person and sort of the standing culture, I think where somebody can do no wrong is not helpful to anybody. And I think being like, this person has done things I agree with. This person has done things I don't agree with. I like their music. You know what I mean? Like there needs to be room for that discussion. So absolutely. Aaron, where can they find us? So don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. It's how people find us. We really appreciate people have been, you guys have been awesome at doing this and and we love it so much and we love reading the new reviews and and we really, really appreciate anyone who can, who takes the time. Um, Can I give a little example of one of those reviews that we just got on Thursday from Bryn23? Five stars. She said, funny and smart. That's it. That's all you got to do. Thank you so much, Bryn23. People, I I get that same way. You want to write a a, a review that says everything you've wanted to say and just be elegant and all this stuff. Sometimes you just say funny and smart, and it means the same thing. Mm -hmm. As long as it's five stars, we want to hear from you. Yeah, so we are, you can email us at lordofthetoastpodcast at gmail.com. Email us your Taylor opinions. We might do a special Taylor episode, um, you know, if we so choose. We are spending Christmas through New Year's together, so we could get bored and we could just start dropping some insane podcasts. (laughs) Um, uh, Because we're all, listen, we're all safe, you know, COVID-wise. It's going to be a very small group. Um, and we have both been isolating. We don't do anything. Um, we're on Twitter at Learning Tropes. We are on Instagram at Learning the Tropes. We have our Facebook group, the Learning the Tropes Troop. We have our merch, which is linked below. Go ahead, check that out. Um, like we said earlier, we are taking a break until February. It has been two years of reading a book a week and we just need a breather. (laughs) Um, so we're basically... So there isn't going to be necessarily a book episode until February. Keep an eye on the Facebook group. Keep an eye on the Instagram feed. Those are the places I will announce um, sort of what we're going to be doing in February. So uh, keep an eye there. In January, there's going to be a lot of stuff. So don't don't worry. We have a ton of really fun stuff planned for you guys. So stay subscribed to the feed because you won't want to miss any of that. But it won't be necessarily us reading books. It's going to be other different things. Like we said, possibly Taylor Swift. We just came up with that now. (laughs) 
But uh, we have other things that are like have actually been been being planned for a while. All right, bye guys. Bye.